What would you do if everyone said they heard your trailer a hundred times? You'd probably make a new one. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, The Ringer's first ever true crime pod. We've been hunting a con man for a few weeks now, and our hunt is coming to an end. Schemes, heartbreak, how to put on a wire. We've covered all this and more, but there are still a few surprises left. Binge The Wedding Scammer wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. I am Justin Barrier, and joining me live from the sphere, projecting me up 90,000 feet in the air like Mothra, it is Rob Mahoney. What's up, Rob? Look, you're more handsome than ever at this size and this scale, Justin, but I have to say, I can see every one of your pores, so we're going to need to talk skincare at some point. I actually do need a a regimen. I've been told that. Yeah? Yeah. I'm just like pure soap to the face, nothing fancy. Uh, I actually went and got a facial with one of my recent girlfriends and they were like, yeah, you need to do some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You need to work on yourself a little bit. But I think maybe we should embark on this together. Me, you, we can get Waz in on it, like a daily sunscreen, you know, just something very basic to to ease us into this world. So we're, we're now accepting sponsorships, I guess, for this new segment in which we do skincare together. See, I can tell that you know at least more than I do because you referenced the, uh, the the sunscreen there. You know what you're supposed to do. But does that make it worse that I'm not doing it either? You know, <laughs> I know better. But I, I, the important thing is I think we can ease ourselves in collectively. It's just like, you know, having a workout buddy, like the accountability <laughs> of having someone show up with you is what's important. I don't do workout buddies either, but I also don't do workouts these days. So, <laughs> Do you do buddies? Uh, I, uh, no, I don't do a lot of those either. Um, except for you, buddy. I'm always here for you, Justin. Thank you. But un- unfortunately, our friend Waz is not here for us today. Uh, I think Ve- Vegas got him. 
I, I, I don't know what got him, whether it was the tables or it was COVID. It sounds like the latter, but um, we wish him well. It seems like he, he caught something going around. Uh, so we will be soldiering on. This is now an intimate conversation between Rob and I. No longer a group chat, just a, just a one-on-one, two buddies talking hoops. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to feel about taking the group out of group chat. It's really a pretty important part of our dynamic, but I think... You know, we can soldier on. If Austin Reeves can soldier on through illness to play in the the NBA Cup Championship and frankly dominate, uh, I think we can do it too. It's true. So uh, later in the podcast, we're going to get to some historic losers. Uh, But first, we need to talk about the historic winner that we witnessed on Saturday. Uh, Lakers are your in-season tournament champions. Let's start here, Rob. Is did Anthony Davis put in the best performance in in-season tournament history on Saturday? <laughs> Who could argue it? Uh, I guess Tyrese Halliburton would would be in the mix if we actually want to interrogate that question. But no, what a what a night for AD. Well, even if we lump Halliburton's performances in previous tournament games into this, I don't think we've seen anybody in any tournament game play as as dominant in so many different ways like be as dominant in so many different ways as Anthony Davis was in this one. Like the defense, the rebounding, the scoring individually were also great. Really incredible stuff from him. I I have a hard time remembering a game in which he was holistically more dominant than that. I actually know the answer to that because when I saw your tweet, I started thinking through some of the performances and the one that jumped out to me was the 59 points, 20 rebounds against the Detroit Pistons that I, my friend, had to jump on from my couch because I was not in Detroit. I was covering the Pelicans at that time, but AD goes off. I had to write the story, reaction story about it. I did find that story and I have to say I covered my eyes before I read it. But I have to say, your boy, your boy turned one in. He, he had some we deadline love magic it. going. Yeah, it wasn't Hell as bad yeah. as I thought it would be. But no, to that point, I went to go see the game score, basketball references game score from the performance from AD last night, 41, 25, and 4. And unfortunately, this game does not exist, according to history, because the in-season tournament finale doesn't even exist on basketball reference. So I can't tell you what the game score was, but AD's best performance according to GameScore, was that 59 points, 20 rebounds, four assists, one block in a regular season game against Detroit, February 21st, 2020, I think 2016, I believe. But I think that is a good comparison point because this was just a regular season game against the Pistons in which, if I remember correctly, they had to really like try. AD needed all 59 of those points to beat a pretty lowly Pistons team. This was obviously on a much bigger scale. A much bigger scale, a much bigger stage. And I think that's what we're talking about in itself is this was, for all intents and purposes, kind of a, a playoff game or a playoff light game. Certainly a level of scheming, of attention, of scouting that's different from your like average regular season matchup. And the fact that AD brought that kind of intensity and this kind of overall impact to a game that mattered... Certainly that registers more than whatever his game score was against the Pistons in February of 2016, Justin. I'm sorry. As they were cycling through like Norris Cole and Luke Babbitt and Omer Ashik <laughs> as Lord. his primary teammates. Yeah, it was a dark time. Obviously having LeBron James and even like a D'Angelo Russell uh, is a little bit of a different circumstance. But I would say that Anthony Davis had the look 
in this one. And now there were at times where the look leaned more like something from Talk to Me, the the horror film. I don't know if you've seen that one. Uh, I highly recommend it. He was channeling a dark spirit is what you're saying. He was in Congress (laughs) with the Beast. Exactly. Like you're used to the guttural screams from AD after he makes a big dunk or a big play, a big block. But there was one time where he was glowering at somebody as if they had just punched his mother and he was ready to just rip their absolute head off. And like, I don't know if I've ever seen that from most basketball players, let alone AD, but like, this is what you get from Davis when he's aggressive, when he's locked in. And to that point, I thought the like, there's obviously a lot of stats from this game. They're going to jump off the page. I think the biggest one is that Miles Turner fouled out in this game relatively early because AD was just attacking, attacking, attacking and got him out of the game as a result of that. Yeah. And how many fouls did AD draw in this game just by hitting the glass? Like he ruined the Pacers in terms of rebounding so badly that they had to start grabbing and pushing and doing whatever they could just to keep him from getting offensive rebounds in particular. And that resulted in a ton of free throws for AD and a ton of free throws for the Lakers because they got into the bonus so early as a result of that. So I really loved that AD, he worked his ass off in this game, but he didn't work against the grain of what he does. He didn't try to be somebody he's not. And I think that's very tempting for bigs in this kind of matchup. You look at the Pacers, a team that can give up so many points in the paint on the right night. They can be very vulnerable on the glass on the right night. And as a big, you may think that, oh, this is my opportunity to bully them inside with like strict kind of post play. And he did some of that, especially against like smaller players and mismatches and things like that. But even from the beginning of this game, you could see the Lakers just rode the same pick and roll with him and D'Lo basically for the better part of a quarter because it was working and there was no need to overcomplicate it because AD was the biggest guy on the floor and he beasted everybody who was smaller than him inside. He beat the Pacers down the floor in transition. He controlled the glass, as we've been saying, and he absolutely wrecked pretty much every Pacers shot attempt that came within eight feet of the basket. Yeah. How many times have we seen teams go into a matchup and say they're just going to pound it in down low against the Pacers, and then ultimately get lulled into a shootout just because the Pacers push so much stress uh, on the other team's offense to keep up with them? And the Lakers at a certain point, I think it took them until the late in the third quarter to make a three pointer, but they weren't even taking many to begin with. Uh, I, I tweeted out during the game. There was a point where it seemed like a run in, and I, hopefully you could follow this Rob because it's a college football analysis so, or, or metaphor, okay. but uh, it's a, it was like a run and shoot team from the pack 12 going up against an SCT what's, SEC team. What's the, what's the pack 12? <laughs> Does that exist anymore? <laughs> I won't in a year or so. It's now the pack two, but uh, that's a whole other thing. But against like an SEC team where the safeties from the SEC team are as big as the defensive linemen from the pack 12 team It's just, there was such a physical advantage and the Lakers took advantage of that. And I think what's interesting about that is I was flashing back to this story that I wrote uh, from a couple of years ago. And Alvin Gentry had this quote that I think is really salient. Uh, he says that, AD is not a real grinded out bump in the low post kind of guy, but he can catch it in the post and square up, face a guy up, and you can get good results from that. That does not totally sound like the Anthony Davis that we have today. I think like we've talked about this in the past, that the development of Davis's game from more wing type of player to what he is now, which is just a big athletic physical force. I thought this was 
kind of a complete performance of this new version of AD to the point where he's like, he's not taking threes anymore. But my whole thrust of this story that I wrote a bunch uh, a couple of years ago is that AD had everything going. Then he had the threes. He was just now starting to take them. It seemed like the right. dawn of a new era. He's reverted from that, but he's found a really excellent version of a, probably a, a less ambitious version of the, what he could have become. Less ambitious, but maybe more consistent in some ways, given who he's been as a shooter and who like who he is as a player. And I think that's okay. It's okay to be a little bit more of a bully in a league where there's not a lot of bullies around if you really take stock of things. And if, and if you want to look at some of the teams that the Lakers have had the most success against over the years, say, say the Warriors in the playoffs last year, like AD's size and length and physicality were the reason that the Lakers were so good in that series and absolutely controlled it. And it was the reason why they absolutely controlled this game against the Pacers. Because Indiana, they're bigs. They have good bigs. They have good players. They're just not ready for a matchup like this. They're not ready for that kind of intensity, not only from AD, but from a fully engaged LeBron on both sides of the ball every minute he's on the floor. That's the kind of thing that they haven't really encountered yet. And it's the kind of challenge that's very exciting to see a team like Indiana go up against. But this is a reminder of what the Lakers do and can do and presumably will do when they get to the playoffs. They have this kind of performance in them. And for my money, we talked about the AD part of it. On a team level, I thought this was as impressive a defensive game as I've seen from any team this season. Like the Pacers are a juggernaut offensively. And the Lakers pressured Tyrese Halliburton, got them out of their stuff, forced good Pacers role players into really uncomfortable positions and rushed them and like challenged everything from the three-point line in to the point where some of those possessions that Indiana was running off, especially later in the game and in the fourth quarter, they're just like spinning their wheels trying to get a shot up. And this is a team that gets the ball across half court within two or three seconds. Yeah, so the Pacers have what is right now the best offense in NBA history. The Lakers managed to hold them to 109 points. And there real was a real like chop off the head of the snake and everything else will just fall as a result of this. There was one point they were blitzing Halliburton pretty much the entire game, but there was one point where Vando was guarding Halliburton and AD came with the blitz to help. And like you would think that Hal Burton had just like fallen into like a cave or something like that. He just could not see <laughs> any sort of light. There was just so much size and length around him. And this is like the recipe that the Lakers not only have built in their most successful errors, I guess, or at least like little runs over the past couple of years, but like this is how they will win if they will win this year. And so it was good to see that play out uh, on I, I don't even know what to call this tournament stage, I guess yeah. uh, playoff a Jace sort of stage. Like this is exactly what LeBron was probably looking for when he was saying to get a test drive of some of these younger guys, some of the rest of his teammates who haven't been into high stakes, high leverage playoff games. You got to see what this team could do uh, when everything was clicking right. Yeah, and it's one thing for the guys we know can do that and who we've seen do it before Anthony Davis among them but to see Cam Reddish be big in this game, right? To see some of the newer Lakers who are, or, you know, even just like Max Christie coming in and giving decent minutes, reliable minutes where he's not making mistakes. He didn't light the world on fire, but he was solid for the minutes the Lakers needed him to be solid. And then you had Austin Reeves, who, again, it's worth saying again, especially since Waz isn't here to sing his praises, but I mean, he was cooking every pacer who tried to guard him. And in particular, Ben Matherin. It's the him season oh tournament, baby. It, it really is. Uh, I, I felt for Ben Matherin in that matchup because he was out of sorts 
outwitted. He honestly looked like if you had put a blindfold on Ben Matherin and spun him around three or four times and then taken off the blindfold and asked him to guard Austin Reeves off the dribble, he was like falling all over himself trying to keep up with like the start and stop of Austin Reeves' off-the-dribble game. And it's it's tough under the best circumstances, but I don't, I don't think Ben Matherin was ready for all that. You know, I joked about it in a previous podcast that Reeves just needed the spotlight of, of tournament play in order to galvanize him. I, I kind of wonder if it's true because this guy does look a little different. Now, the whistle was very quick in this game. Yes. Like, it was boring. I would say yeah. too quick across the board. Like, I, I think yeah. it tilted in various directions at various times. The Pacers, I thought, got a lot of calls too. I would have preferred if they called this a little more like a playoff game, to be honest with you. Yeah. And so Reeves being able to draw fouls, as I've said in the past, I think brings out a different side of him. There was one point where TJ McConnell basically straight jacketed him and he couldn't get away from him. So, but yeah, in that first half, flu game Reeves looked incredible. But ultimately, I think the MVP went to LeBron James and probably rightly so. Although I, I'm curious what you think. So this was an MVP based on the entire tournament. Correct? Yes. Or just yeah. the stage in Las Vegas? I think my interpretation, based on what I have seen, is that it's just the elimination rounds. So that would include the quarterfinals before you get to Las Vegas, but not include group play. Okay. And so do you think LeBron justly won this award? Yeah. He's, he's been amazing. What's the argument? Is the argument against Halliburton or Davis? Or what are you thinking? I think the argument would be for Davis because of his finals performance that for this one game, if this was the finals and typically we give finals MVP for the finals that it could, when, should have gone to Davis. But uh, I mean, at this point, that's just semantics and it breaks down to like, what were, are we actually awarding? Yeah. I mean, it was a, Davis was unimpeachable in this game. So I'd certainly have no problem with him winning whatever it is that's available to win. But there's also a, a certain historical moment in the first ever NBA cup going to one of the NBA's most historic franchises and the first ever MVP of that cup going to, even as Adam Silver called out in the trophy ceremony, I'm sorry, LeBron, we can't give you a franchise, but here's this other trophy for you. That was good. I appreciated that. I also nice appreciated bit. the Indianapolis star writer who gave a vote to Tyrese Halliburton. Got it. Got a, Grease those skids, my friend. That that's beat writer action happening in in real time there. Um, but yeah, I know Lebr LeBron was incredible here. You could definitely tell that just his desire to win this probably got everybody else on board here. It's always kind of a fool's errand trying to read into LeBron's motivations for things. I think people typically just default to some Machiavellian, like pulling the strings sort of thing. But I, I think you could see various things at play here. Clearly, he wanted to get his young teammates some money. Clearly, he wanted to get his young teammates some playoff action to see yep. probably whether or not they should or could stick with him throughout the rest of this season. But also, it seems like LeBron was very much aware that this tournament's success probably lived and died based on how he would perform. And he lived up to that moment. I think, I think this is when to your point about him not getting a franchise. I, I, I think this is LeBron as an NBA partner doing his yes. bid and recognizing that the money for this one tournament performance isn't actually what matters. It's actually the bigger picture of selling this for a billion dollars and getting the, the BRI half of the BRI of it long-term. Yeah. 
this this was an ambassadorial role. And to be fair, I think Tyrese Halliburton played a pretty solid ambassadorial role in this too, in terms of making the tournament something like competitive, something worth fighting for, something he wanted to win and that the Pacers wanted to win. That's why it was so thrilling to watch these two teams here at the end of the day, two teams that took the tournament really, really seriously. And I like even just seeing them celebrate the trophy. Like I actually really liked like the little medal ceremony. I thought it was something unique that's kind of like bridging the difference between the NBA and the Olympics or the NBA and the FIBA World Cup gave us like a, a different kind of celebration. And then, yeah, like pop a few bottles of champagne, celebrate this moment for what it is because it is historic. It is, you are the winners, the first winners of something that hopefully will go on to have a long NBA legacy. I think that's something that's pretty cool. And I think LeBron recognized that from the beginning that, yeah, he could stick his nose up at it and probably other stars would follow suit if he did, or he could imbue it with some kind of importance and maybe some other stars would follow him in that too. Yeah. I, I wonder how he feels about Otani making 700 million on the same day that he was probably earning the NBA a billion dollars. Like whatever LeBron makes, he's probably worth 10 million more, not only to his franchise, but the NBA. I mean, LeBron's doing fine. I'm not, I'm not worried about <laughs> LeBron's bottom line. He's got that space jam money. Oh my gosh. Look, somebody paid him too much for Space Jam 2. Uh, but the other thing, NBA players too, like especially stars, if we're all being honest here, their NBA contract is not their primary contract. Like LeBron's contract is with Nike. That is his, that's where he gets his money and he plays for the Lakers. So he, he's going to be all right. But an extra 500K in the pocket certainly doesn't hurt anything. I saw that the two-way players even get a portion of the winnings. They don't get the full 500, but they get half. So the Lakers two-way players, none of which actually played in any of the in-season tournament games, I believe, yeah. earned $250,000 just by being a two-way player on the right team. I think they should get the full 500. What are what they, second-class citizens? <laughs> yeah, literally, by definition, they are. They are actual <laughs> roster players. They are somewhere in between a rostered player mm. and a G League player. That's I think they're on the roster. Man. It's a designated spot on the roster for two-way players. I think you should get the full 500, but... That's better no, than Waz's man. contract, man. He only does half of these podcasts and still gets his full <laughs> salary. <Man. laughs> Uh, but is there anything else from this one on the Lakers side? Like my big question coming out of this is the long-term takeaway for both sides of the, uh, both of these teams. Like, do you think you learned anything about the Lakers or does this change your perspective on how good the Lakers can be this season? I think it just clarified that they've still got this in them, that even with the ups and downs of the regular season and guys in and out of the lineup with injury and look, their offense is going to be what it is on some nights. It's not always going to be that successful. And certainly we see that in terms of the three-point shooting, as you mentioned, like they can just go very, very cold from the perimeter in ways that make them super reliant on all that interior play, maybe too reliant on that interior play at times. But defensively, they can crank up like this and they can key in on your team and take away what you do best. And that's not just AD and LeBron, it's the perimeter pressure. It's having the length of your Jared Vanderbilt and your Cam Reddishes on guards, chasing them over screens, making it difficult. We've seen it now against Halliburton. We saw it against Steph Curry in the playoffs. We've seen all the ways that the Lakers can kind of twist the screws on what you do. And I think that's what makes them such a compelling playoff pick and playoff prospect. And I'm sure for a lot of people are going to be another kind of Western Conference Finals candidate. Yeah, I think on the good side, obviously the recipe 
for a LeBron James team, for this Lakers team, is very much clear. Whenever LeBron is in high leverage games, he can manipulate a game in the way uh, like he could 10 years ago and still come out on top of there. And so you got to be buoyed by that. And obviously, the defense can just be destructive if if given the right opponent, first and foremost, but probably against most teams. It's a little bit easier just given uh, the size disadvantage that the, the Pacers were at that I mentioned earlier. It did feel like uh, a different type of team, different class of team for that reason, um, where in the West, you're going against Godzilla's and Gamera's to your Mothra every single Gamora's, time. I think, right? Isn't it? I have no idea. <laughs> no, you're the one who Just, watched Godzilla minus one. So, <laughs> I mean, look, Godzilla minus one was sick, uh, but no other creatures in that one. Really, the only other creature in Godzilla minus one is the collective pain of trauma. So, go out and see that right now. <laughs> uh, you're really selling it. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the flip side of it, though, I keep flashing back to man, if they just had a upgrade on D'Angelo Russell. And had more of a bullet point, a bulletproof ball handler with some scoring juice who could manage the LeBron sitting minutes. They would be on a whole other class. Russell was okay in this one. Yeah, he this is a pretty to, pretty good D-Lo game, which he managed to sit Bruce Brown's ass down and and talk shit to him. Which uh, that was really actually, something. I appreciated because until they had brought up that D-Lo was talking shit to Brown, I didn't even realize Bruce Brown was playing. In that game, he just completely faded. Uh, and that one, and after all the junk he talked over the offseason, you know, I thought it was fair to, to give him a little back, especially considering how, how shitty he played in this game. Absolutely. Uh, but if there was just somebody else there, I, I constantly say, like, Russell is either doing too much or too little at any point, and that's more a function of his role on the team. They just need someone in that position to give them a little bit of juice. Reeves did the lion's share of it in the first half, but like that game could have gone a different way at, at various points, in part because the Lakers weren't hitting a goddamn three, as I mentioned. Uh, I think there were 0 for 10 to start the game from three and like the Pacers are the exact team who could have taken advantage of that. Obviously there's a lot of other teams in the West who can. So there's still that one shred of doubt that I have that wasn't dissipated, even though the performance in the Lakers was so good. Yeah. That's one, another area where the Lakers defense is really successful. If you look at the Pacers three point shooting 10 of 41 from three, clearly that's a below standard performance for the Pacers. But they're 10 of 41 from three because they really eliminated a lot of the easiest looks that Tyrese Halliburton gets from three by the way they played the pick and roll by trapping and pressuring Halliburton so much. He could never just come around a screen and fire as if you were in a drop. And so he goes two for eight. Buddy Heald, I thought, had some makeable shots, but also had some rushed ones. And then as you see that kind of cascading down the rest of the lineup, then it's like, okay, is Aaron Neesmith going to hit his shots? Is Miles Turner going to hit his shots? Is Bruce Brown who, as you mentioned, was invisible to kind of just not good for, for most of this game. Is he going to hit his shots? And that's where I thought it was kind of interesting to watch the Pacers was they so clearly needed another guy who could create in space, who could make something happen after Halliburton gave the ball up. It really kind of illuminated where they are for better and worse right now. Yeah, I was going to ask on the flip side of the Lakers, like, do we think any different of them do you think any differently of the Pacers now that they've had this dramatic run, uh, but ultimately fell a bit short of that elite tier, probably, uh, of team? I don't really see them any differently, do you? Um, At the very least, I see Tyrese Halliburton a little differently 
Like, I think sure. he was on this trajectory. Where do we have him on our top 100? I think he's like 11th. And we had kind of a, a debate about whether or not he or De'Aaron Fox should be ahead of each other. That like that tier of of second stars, like maybe Booker and Shea are on another level right now. Uh, those are like the MVP candidate sort of guys. Halliburton's just below that with the Jamal Murrays and the Foxes and lower t- than that, uh, the, the Donovan Mitchells. I think this run really solidified that he is a guy. Like for me, like there is no doubt at this point that you just put things around him and he's going to be able to do the best of it. I mean, I was looking up the Steve Nash comp has been thrown around a lot here. I was looking at Steve Nash's MVP years and like the, because of the free flowing nature of the seven seconds or less offense, there was going to be turnovers in the same way, like the Steph Curry warriors uh, turned it over despite being absolutely brilliant and, and exhilarating offensively. Uh, Nash was at like 3.5 and 3.8 turnovers game. Halliburton's like at least one, maybe more below that. The fact that he's able to play at this pace to do what he does to to dominate the ball and yet not turn it over is remarkable. I, I can't think of anything like that. And especially when you think about the way pace has changed over time in the NBA, the seven seconds or less Suns are not fast by the standards of today's league. So the pace is dramatically higher than those Suns teams were playing at and Halliburton is playing such a clean game. It's really remarkable what he's able to do. And even in a game like this one, again, he's seeing constant pressure. In a lot of ways, he he was, the way the Lakers were treating Tyrese Halliburton is the same way you're describing him. This is a guy. This is one of the premier players in the NBA, and we're going to give him the defensive respect he deserves as, as a result of that. And he had three turnovers in this game, but he had 11 assists playing out of pressure, playing, as as you mentioned earlier, passing out of, like, Vando AD double teams, incredible length on him. And we, we saw his his jump passes put to a pretty different purpose in this one, where sometimes it's just like, this is the only way I can get a pass out over this kind of like defensive pressure right now. But I thought his reads were good. And honestly, I thought he did a lot to free himself up to attack when he could. You saw a lot of cases, you know, he's being picked up full court by Jared Vanderbilt, by like, you know, bigger wings, bigger players. And he would kind of rev up to sprint into the inbound pass so that he could take off past those guys and get the Pacers into their offense. You saw some times off ball where they were able to get him going like on quick catches and attacks. And he was really one of the only Pacers who was successful going to the basket because he has such great touch off the glass. He's so good at working those angles. Everyone else was stifled pretty badly by Anthony Davis in particular. And that, that's one area where they just struggle. Like Turner catching in the middle of the floor and trying to make something happen wasn't very successful. Bruce Brown catching in the middle of the floor, trying to make something happen off the dribble wasn't very successful. And Indiana is a team that runs a lot of different screeners for Halliburton for this reason. Like they're trying to f- triangulate what is the successful matchup here? Who is the screener we need to use to get us rolling and get something going? Like, where's the matchup we can exploit? And in this game, there was no matchup to exploit because Halliburton was was stymied that much. Well, how much of that is a result of maybe not having the type of outlet that a player of his caliber probably needs when you're drawing so much of that attention, um, which is probably the bigger picture takeaway from this one game, if not just the the first 20 or so games from the Pacers. Uh, I think it's interesting that in the midst of all of this uh, hype for Halliburton and the Pacers, deservedly so, we get the Woj reports about the Pacers are being aggressive out there looking for yep. an upgrade. And I should mention, first and foremost, I believe I read that on the ringer.com from Rob Mahoney a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> you first did. and foremost. Yeah. Um, 
So very so the Pacers are being pl- pretty transparent about the fact that they would like to upgrade. And now we should say first and foremost uh, that the fact that they recognize that Halliburton is already that guy is something. They probably saw that earlier. I, I think you were up there during preseason, right? Yeah. And so clearly they know what they have on their hands, but the fact that they are openly acknowledging that they probably need a number two, someone to run with him, uh, I think is already salient because one of the questions I have for you coming out of this is like, is it the right time to do that sort of move? Because on the one hand, they had this miraculous run where they had a lot of good vibes and it seems like everyone is really clicking alongside each other. There's a real college atmosphere with this team uh, that I think that you have to be fond of if you're a Pacers fan. On the other hand, are there limits to that? Did we see that in the Lakers game? And if anything, did this loss almost give them more uh, credence to the fact that they should go out and swing a big move? Yeah, I think this game did a lot of things in terms of bringing that sort of clarity. For one, I'm fascinated by the Pacers as really our first like test case of the NBA Cup because this is a team that's on course for a playoff spot and they got a preview of what playoff competition looks like, what, four months, four to five months in advance and now they get a chance to kind of teach to the test, so to speak, in terms of their preparation. Like they know what Tyrese is going to see in terms of coverage from some of these really aggressive teams. Not everyone can pull it off like the Lakers did, but teams are going to try. And so you have those kinds of answers ahead of time and you get to kind of reverse engineer them and figure out how do we solve that? How do we solve this sorts of sort of coverage? And then the other part is the question you're asking, which is, do we have enough to solve that sort of coverage? Do we have enough in terms of the supporting cast here? And for me, what this game told me was there are certain players who aren't going to be enough. Like OG Ananobi is a frequent Pacers trade target. I don't think an OG Ananobi type player is enough. You need someone who's gonna you need someone who's gonna be pretty dynamic offensively in this role. And obviously you want size. We're, we're talking forwards and wings primarily. You want size, you want someone who can run and keep up with this pace, and you want a two-way player who's gonna be a, a good defender for you. But if it's just that, and it's not someone who can play this exact sort of role we're talking about, like can you be the outlet guy when when Halliburton gets trapped and make something productive happen with the ball? I don't know how much you're really moving the needle. And so so I'm I'm looking at, you know, there, there's a, a bunch of names that kind of fit that description. Some of them are upcoming for agents and some of them not. Pascal Siakam is obviously going to be in those conversations all season long because of his state with the Raptors. And also, he just seems like he'd be a great fit with the Pacers for a variety of reasons. But do you trade for him or do you wait and try to play the free agent market for him? You know, you've got Paul George, who's conspicuously and constantly making positive comments about Indianapolis on his podcast. I wouldn't say like Tyrese Cleveland levels. Tyrese Halliburton is a frequent guest on that podcast. <laughs> so there's a there's a lot in the air right now. And it, it's I think it's clear to everybody involved that this version of the Pacers is is very good and competitive, but there's something missing. They're gonna need to continue to develop, they're gonna need to continue to add. The question is when. Do you do it during this season or do you wait? I find that question to be so fascinating because I do think if you look back uh, on a lot of teams' handling with star players, when to hit the button on that next move, that big splashy trade often dictates the long-term success for that. We see it with the Mavs. Uh, They go out and get 
Kristaps Porzingis, they were a little too early, or maybe they didn't get the exact right guy. And all of a sudden, the Mavs have been in disarray for yeah. a couple of years now to the point where they basically had to settle for a Kyrie Irving just to make sense of uh, the last couple of years of Luka. And maybe Kristaps was the right guy and maybe he was good enough and he got hurt at the exact wrong time because th- they had some really like successful stretches with him and then he got hurt and then everything went off the rails. Like it's, it's such a delicate balance in terms of the timing with all this stuff. Well, I don't know if you saw Kristaps, the clips circulating from the JJ Reddick podcast where he was basically open about the fact that like one, he shouldn't have asked for a trade from the Knicks. And then also he was kind of lamenting that things went wrong with Luca. And now I also found his, his uh, quote about Luca not getting as much of the ire from like Rick Carlisle, our guy with the Pacers now yeah. in the huddle. And I thought that was illuminating about star power and how certain guys get preferential treatment and even other guys who are in air quote stars do not. I thought that was really like it crystallized the, the distinction there. Um, but clearly, like he looks back on that and, and laments that because that could have been the moment, but he wasn't mature enough in order to make that work. And so that's interesting with Halliburton too, because yeah, I I almost look at the OG Siakam decision. It is almost like the the Jackie Maryland corollary that we've talked about in the past, where it's like, <laughs> what flavor have we? Do you? I definitely mentioned it. <laughs> I don't know if this one quite fits because I don't know if they're the same type uh, and just it has to be really perfect, but I don't think this is that. But I do think that sort of decision, if it, if they had their druthers, whether they wanted a catch and shoot guy who was just like bulletproof defensively or a guy who could do a little bit more with the ball in his hands like Siakam, but maybe isn't as a reliable three-point shooter as you want as a kickout option for Halliburton. It's interesting because Siakam's a guy who's been in this league for a very long time, has won a title in this league. Uh, OG obviously was part of the title team, but wasn't in the rotation because he was injured during the playoffs. And he's going to come to this team with star proclivities and expectations. And I do wonder how that melds with a young, fun, spunky young team like the Pacers, where I'm not saying it's like a bad, if anything, it's a really great chemistry, it seems like there, but you're trying to glom on something to something that fits and doing that mid-season even seems very difficult. And so... Yeah, this is this is a really interesting discussion that Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers have on their hands here that I'm sure they're talking through daily at this point. For sure. And there's also the issue too of if you make a trade for a big-time player now, you're going to have to give up good players in that deal. Probably on the younger end of the spectrum, you would think Jairus Walker, who's not in the rotation, Ben Matherin could be in those discussions as, as a key piece. But also, you know, veteran guys who have salaries that you need to make that kind of deal work. So you're giving up good players if you make the trade. But you're also probably giving up good players if you wait. Because if you're relying on cap space, Buddy Heald is a free agent who's probably going to have to be let go in that instance. Obi Toppin is going to be a restricted free agent. You might not quite be able to afford him, depending on where the money on, on a you know a star level addition goes. And Bruce Brown has a massive team option. They're going to have to figure out what to do with. So there's going to be trade-offs no matter where you look and where you start. I'm kind of of the opinion that at this point in the process, unless there's a fit that is pretty much perfect, I, I wouldn't disrupt too much. I kind of want to see how the rest of these guys fill the space that's afforded to them. And the second you bring in someone, even someone like Siakam, who's a good 
team-oriented player who moves the ball, who can work in a system, who could fit really well with this team. But say like Siakam's on your team and Ben Matherin is still on your team, Matherin is now a little bit more stifled than he was before. You know, Toppin's development, if he's still on your team, is a little more stifled than it was before. So I, I kind of want to see this science experiment run its course a little bit more, even while acknowledging that they don't have enough. And I think that could be okay for this season. As long as they're competitive and they're fighting and they're in position for a playoff spot, like being a winning team at this stage in the process is enough. Yeah, it's so crazy though, because like you mentioned, there are just a lot of ticking, not time bombs, but clocks, because there are options. There are Miles Turner, I believe, only has one year after this one. Matherin's extension decision comes quicker than you'd expect. And so they're on a clock that's probably a lot better than like a Joel Embiid size clock, a clock doing a Generation X uh, crotch chop. Uh, but they certainly like things come. It gets late early in the NBA. And I think this sort of situation really crystallizes that. Just just a free merch idea for the ringer.com. But if we could get like a grandfather clock that has Joel <laughs> at the top of it and does the crotch chop on the hour every hour, I would pay exorbitant <laughs> amounts of money for it. Uh, so what do you think about Siakam though? Like if you were to look at the options on the table, uh, we all know the names who are out there ostensibly. Levine, DeRozan, et cetera, et cetera. Like, is Siakam the closest to what you would hope to fill that that secondary slot in Indy? Yeah, I think Siakam is the cleanest, easiest, most plausible fit of all the players you would talk about at this stage. But maybe another reason you wait is to see if there's a better fit that comes available. That it's one of the names that isn't on the market right now, where a team shakes loose, a contender disappoints, and all of a sudden... There's another forward who we could talk ourselves into. It's again very, very difficult at this stage in the process. That's why, like, I unless the deal for Siakam is very favorable for the Pacers, and I think that's a possibility given his upcoming free agency, maybe less of a possibility given that it's the Toronto Raptors. And I don't know that we've seen a, a franchise be like stingier in terms of trading their own players, even with their free agency staring them down and demanding crazy, crazy prices in return. At least that's, that's what you hear. That's what's out there, both from other teams and other reporting that's out there. So I, that part doesn't seem super plausible to me, but if something happened and the Raptors made a philosophical turn and decided now is the time to trade Pascal Siakam and we are willing to accept a somewhat Pacers-friendly deal to do it, then yes. But short of that, I kind of think you still wait. Have I floated my luminary director theory to you at all about Masai and the Raptors? I don't think so, no. <laughs> I guess it's not really a theory so much as it is a, a metaphor, but like he reminds me now of like a Scorsese or some of these other high-level directors who have advanced to a certain point of their career where clearly they are still a master of their craft, but they need someone to say no. They need an editor, but they they're need, so oh, this, they're so this is such an editor so take. It's ridiculous, <laughs> <laughs> just ridiculous. I, I also watched recently The Irishman, and like I actually came away loving that movie probably more than I did in the first time. It's a very good movie, mm. but then I was reminded in the first hour you get zombie White Walker Robert De Niro, and it takes that long until Al Pacino even gets into the movie. And I'm like, <laughs> if someone had just said like. Do we need like half an hour of this guy just lumbering through as if he's a 30-year-old guy pretending to be with CGI? Like maybe that would have been better, right? 
I feel like th- I feel like the Raptors and Masai in particular is at that stage of his career where he's done so much good stuff. There's still guys up and down this roster who are success stories that any team would would love to have. But he's become so pearl clutching of his vision for certain things that he's not realizing that what they need is a whole scale rebuild. They need to really cut from this thing and find the clear vision. I think what's interesting in Masai's case is I, I agree he's got Oh, look, some clear wins, a championship validated win on his resume. And even before he was in Toronto, did some very good work in Denver. Like this, he's been doing good work for a long time, but he, he he's not the Scorsese. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like if he had a couple big early wins, you know, if he, if he had just done Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and then yada, 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 now he has more power than almost any executive in the league. Like I'm, I'm a fan of his work. I think Masai is good at his job, but he has some some big losses on his resume too. Like he's waited too long in in a lot of these cases, especially in the contemporary Raptors. Like this this team should have been changed or like dissolved seasons ago at this point. See, you say that though, but then there's Scotty Barnes. You're like you count him out. He's had some fallow periods, but it's like oh. Scotty Barnes, the Irishman, pretty good. <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah, sure, I, I can quibble with certain things, but like Barnes over Suggs at that time was kind of a revelation. It was a swing. I think it was a swing. I think people were pretty surprised. Even the draft Knicks, who were all projecting Suggs to be the clear cut number, I think, four guy in that draft. Uh, or what was it? Five. I can't remember. But like drafting Barnes over him turned out to be not only the right decision, but a kind of a a, a, a massive franchise altering one a, a huge franchise altering decision to be sure and yeah I, I don't want this to be perceived at all as me taking shots at the work Messiah has done I just hate Scorsese think, <laughs> I, <if> anything, <laughs> I love Scorsese too much and that's why I'm, I'm a little miffed by this metaphor but yeah I, I just don't see how we got to the point where to to your original thesis Messiah is a guy that no one can check that no one can say no to that no one can nudge and say like is this really what we want to be doing right now I think we went very quickly from a guy who makes some good transactions to here we are with the Toronto Raptors in yet another year of just kind of spinning our wheels because we have a roster full of good guys who we can't bear to let go of yep uh all right let's uh let's tie the bow on the in-season tournament two thumbs up right absolutely any other Extremely adjustments pro. we want to make? Because we can't have an in-season tournament discussion without trying to tweak some version of this format. Yeah. I think the only thing I go back and forth on is the where to host it and when in terms of like time of day when. Yeah. I think, I think this particular in-season tournament final distorts that conversation a little bit. Because I, I know there's a lot of focus on Las Vegas being basically a, a Lakers home game in this occasion, but the Lakers are not going to be in this every year. They're not going to be in the final. And if any other two teams are playing, I think it is a, a pretty fair neutral site. Yeah. It seemed like neither of us were actually there. Uh, it seemed like the the Lakers fan really showed out and, and turned this into a practical home game for the Lakers. And so that was a little disappointing. Uh, I agree with you. Maybe this is just uh, a perfect storm situation where the Lakers ended up in there. I also think like, you know, it's, it's a much closer journey for the likes of the Kings, you know, or the Warriors, 
So there are a lot of teams in proximity there that probably have more of an advantage. Well, and so for that where reason... Where do you want to put it? On the moon? Like, it's going to be close to somebody. <laughs> no, I get, I get that. So I think my suggestion would be to just move it every year, almost like the Super Bowl oh, goes like, between okay. a couple different arenas. Uh, I assume the reason why they picked Las Vegas is because the logistics of it are so easy. They obviously do that for summer league. So they probably have the process built in in order to host something as big as this with multiple teams uh, all descending upon one location there. And I also think like during the middle of the season, you don't want to be traveling to, for instance, France or something like really extravagant to really blow this thing out. Um, But I was thinking like maybe like a Mexico City would be fun for next year. A, a place where the NBA is trying to get a foothold. Obviously, they have a G League team there now. They have Adam Silver has been open about like safety concerns there. So maybe that's a reason yeah. not to do that. But like let, let's move it around a little bit. Let's get every part of the country something. Let's let's go to Canada or something and like give them the opportunity to host this. It would be fun if there was a different locale every every time. I wonder if you get too close to all-star territory at that point. Maybe. I, I I think Mexico City, based on the NBA's track record there and hosting games, is probably too much of a logistical production for an event of this size. It like th- there have been successful games there and successful crowd like the crowds have been really good. Like there was a Hawks game earlier there this season that I thought was an amazing neutral site crowd for a game like that. So so I like that precedent, but I wonder about the logistical concerns. And if yeah, if you're putting it anywhere in the US, you're gonna be close to some market or another. And I wonder too, if, if we get an expansion team in Las Vegas, do you then have to move it? Or, or is it just okay oh. that it's kind of one of these teams? Like, I'm, you know, they're not going to move Summer League regardless of if there's a Las Vegas in, like NBA team or not. But the NBA Cup is a slightly different thing and a slightly different concern. And I, I wonder maybe if it starts moving around or, or some other like location solution at that point. What about an aircraft carrier? Like they do. Okay, for now we're talking. The NCAA. <laughs> yeah. Just put them on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. I love, lo- well, actually, have, have you ever played basketball on a boat before? No, you have? Well, Joe, like I've attempted. <laughs> Not a yacht. I look, I would love a yacht with a basketball court. I've tried to play basketball on a, a, cr- a moving cruise ship. Wouldn't I recommend it? The, the wind draft. <laughs> Look, it's a, it becomes a very ugly game. It becomes a very interior game, which appeals to the the pickup big man in me, but not so much the person who would like to finish a game of basketball. Are you a cruise guy? No, not in, cer- certainly not at this stage. Uh, <laughs> but I've been on a cruise before. Uh, I can't do it. I've, I've never been on one, and it honestly sounds like my hell. Like being trapped. What is it that you're bumping against? Uh, one, like the fact that it probably is what started COVID with someone on like a carnival cruise, <laughs> uh, just oh, being yeah. trapped with other humans who are not only going to get me sick, but like try to talk to me <laughs> is like, is my absolute hell. The number of people who just think it's an okay and acceptable thing to just create cruise or vacation friendships with complete strangers you don't know. Don't do this. Don't talk to me out in the world like that. Like I find to have a a couple one-off conversations, but like, we are not making plans together people. Like it's it's just not happening. Um, But yeah, look, don't, don't go on a cruise. That would be my ultimate advice. But if you do go on a cruise, don't attempt to play basketball. Yeah. Just do it alongside the Lakers and the Pacers as they are playing for the NBA cup. That that's our advice. How do you do that? (laughs) 
Well, maybe we could turn this into a whole like event, you know? It's like go on the cruise oh. with the teams, you know? It's a it's a whole experiential thing. Like like how they're doing with like various emo bands and stuff at this point, you know? It's like go on go on a cruise with Newfound Glory or whatever. Is that a thing? Well, it was a thing. I don't I think post-COVID maybe not as much of a thing, but it, it was it was out there. We used to be a proper country, is what you're saying. <laughs> I think so. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man. I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, let's uh, let's pivot now from uh, some historic winners to some absolutely historic losers. So I believe the last time we did a full blown segment about the Detroit Pistons was the first Sunday podcast we did. I think they were two yep. and one. Not a lot has changed. <laughs> Not a lot has changed. Looking back on it, I do wonder if we were giving too much credit to a team that was stretching out a player by the nickname Beef Stew. You know, it wasn't like Grease Lightning or like Hawkeye Marksman. It was a guy named Beef Stew who was being forced into a catch and shoot situation (laughs) because they had to play so many big men because they have so many goddamn big men on this roster. Um, Hawkeye Marksman sounds like the name a seven year old (laughs) would give their action figure of like a a generic store brand superhero. I I salute you for that. Uh, so the the Pistons are two and twenty now. They have now lost nineteen straight games. Uh, it is the longest streak in franchise history in one season. The longest recent streak uh, skid in in NBA history is twenty one games by the Houston Rockets just in the twenty twenty one season. The longest skid ever is 26 games by the Philadelphia 76ers during the process and in, in the thick of the process, 13, 14 season. So we're not that far away from this being one of the worst teams the, the Spurs who are also going to talk about 16 straight losses. Uh, so they have some company here, but I think that the darkest place to be in the NBA is bad while trying to be good. And the yeah. Pistons signaled by a lot of different ways, chief among them trading for Boyan Bogdanovich and not retrading him to recoup some assets from them that they kind of wanted to make sense of what they have. And yet here they are trying their best and losing 19 straight. This is pretty, pretty dark pretty quickly. The thing too is I I thought it was already pretty dark last season, but this might be worse where Cade Cunningham is actually playing. The roster has a lot of theoretical talent and it's just loss after loss after loss. 
And not only are they on a historic pace in terms of the streak that you're talking about, but right now they're on pace for the worst record in NBA history. We have the, you know, the 72-73 Sixers are the worst record in a full season, 9-73. and 73. Then you've got the, the post-lockout Bobcats, who in a shortened season, 7-59. and 59. But 2-20 and 20 <laughs> Detroit Pistons. It's, it's miserable. Like I know this isn't technically, statistically, the most miserable offense in the league, but it is the most miserable offense in the league. This is, they're, they're an absolute chore to watch, and it, it's brutal. Yeah, I think theoretical talent is where this discussion should center on because that Bobcats team also had some recent high draft picks. I believe it was like Augustin, it was Kemba Walker before he learned how to shoot. Uh, it was Gerald Henderson. So like they had picked high and they had aggregated ostensible prospects. And I worry that the Pistons might have fallen into the same trap here. Like they have a lot of young guys that they're playing through and young guys make mistakes. We say this all the time. And so you're going to lose games. So on the one hand, you could say like, and eh, they were kind of destined to be bad is the fact that they've lost so many in a row, just exacerbating a problem that we were all expecting. On the other hand, I think everyone expected a leap from Cape Cunningham and frankly, I think everyone expected some of their recent prospects to be halfway decent. I think Asar Thompson has been very good as his kind of junk it up uh, Swiss Army Knife athletic dynamo, uh, even though he's been relegated to the bench in the midst of all of this. But like, God, just Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey, a guy I was never high on, and I don't really know what his pathway to good basketball is, if only because, if only because he is a ball dominant athletic guard who can't shoot. And I'm trying to think of anyone who has succeeded in that role, who isn't a number one offense, who's going to be driving the offense. And so like, well, a, a productive have, pathway for Ivy also depends on Monty Williams being willing to play Jaden Ivy. It's that doesn't it's, help. It's so weird at this point. Like I know Jaden Ivy is not going to solve all this team's problems, but with where you are, you should be playing him either because he's talented and more talented than the guys you're playing over him, or you should be playing him because he's important and his development is important. And the fact that Jay Nivey isn't even like a real sixth man for this team is mystifying. Like he's not even the guy you bring in off the bench so he can have more space to himself to explore and figure out what he can do. He's just like a random wing that they barely prioritize at all. Yeah, and that's where I'm wondering, is the situation so dire that Williams is now getting pressure to play guys who are in theory more suited to be at least not making mistakes rather than playing through the mistakes of an Ivy and some of these other guys and actually being worse because you want to get them the reps. This is where the situation gets dicey because you're not doing the things that will help you long term and you're clearly not doing the things that are helping you in the short term either. Yeah, uh, who are the guys on this team that are not making mistakes? Like, who are the veteran guys you could trust if you're Monty Williams? Because I can maybe the most obvious name on that list is Alec Burks. But let yeah. me tell you, nobody has fallen off a freaking cliff harder than Alec <laughs> Burks over the course of this season. Like, he's missing everything, making bad decisions with the ball. There's just no reason you should be playing him over guys like Ivy or even Marcus Sasser, frankly. Yeah, Sasser did not get in until late. Uh, in the other night's game. So, yeah, I mean, Boyan even seems out of sorts. It seemed like he got he's rushed been, back. He's been pretty he's been good, fine. at least. Yeah. He's, 
But he just doesn't have any sort of chemistry or no. just like working uh, muscle memory with Cade and some of these other guys. And you could see it on the court there where I believe they were up in their game on Friday uh, against the Magic. And all of a sudden, the third quarter comes in. It seems like most teams these days, especially young teams, just fall apart in those third quarters. And so I'm just well, looking we'll, around. We'll talk more about that with our other streaking bad team right now, who is a, a third quarter disaster. But yeah, the Pistons are not covering themselves in glory in the second halves either. So I would say the one thing, if I'm going to pinpoint one thing to be most concerned about here is Detroit made a very clear decision to take risks on second draft guys like James Wiseman, like Marvin Bagley, as opposed to taking picks and just aggregating cap space and to take on picks in the way that like a team like the Thunder has. And now, um, now Troy Weaver comes from the Thunder system but clearly he has zagged to where he is taking instead of the future draft picks, having so many guys on the roster that you could have lottery tickets for and clearly tried to unearth what was left of the high prospects of Wiseman and Bagley. And so that hasn't worked. First and foremost, those guys I don't think are keepers, but you also don't have other intriguing young guys. So I'm looking up and down this roster and yeah, there are high draft picks, but other than that, there really isn't the depth of talent that even like the Rockets, for instance, have this season where they pretty much had to jettison, what was it, three recent low first round picks just to sign some of these veteran players that they have now because they just were stumbling over themselves with, with first round picks. The Pistons don't really have that and their top picks haven't really hit. And so... I'm a little worried that they might not be as close to flipping this even that you might think for a team that has drafted so high over the recent years. Oh yeah, they're they're not a team that feels like they're on the brink of anything. They're just out there every night staring into the void. And even though, you know, Tom Gores in particular, the the governor of the Pistons seemed pretty insistent before the season that this was a team that was like ready to take a step, that was ready to move forward. That's clearly not the case. And not only that, I, I don't know that leadership changes are coming here. I, I don't know that there's going to be any like heads rolling as a result of all this losing. And I think that there's plenty of blame to go around on a lot of different fronts. Front office, coaching, I mean, clearly on the part of the players who make just so many mistakes, just so many young player mistakes and not in an adorable play your way through them way in a way that is crippling games against the Memphis Grizzlies. You know, like last week, this I think this is the rock bottom was the Memphis Grizzlies loss where Memphis was out six rotation players. Desmond Bain scored 49 points. Jalen Duran went down with an ankle injury, which I think might be his third ankle injury of the season. He's been playing through for a team that is going nowhere. And they lost to Memphis. And it's like, it's you're not going to have like a more red carpeted chance to break your streak than that and you could you couldn't even pull that much off but part of their problem really is that this isn't a team that can ride a hot shooting night to a win because they don't have hot shooters they don't have any kind of shooters before Bojan came back I genuinely think Isaiah Stewart was their best three-point shooter like their best and most consistent three-point <laughs> shooting option that is a problem so how are you supposed to win these games against better teams, more talented teams, more seasoned teams, when you can't even be writing like, oh, this is the night where all of our shots fell. 
There's no space. There's no shooting. There's no flow to the offense. The players do not fit together in the ways that, like, frankly, I thought this would be at least a fun team to watch this season. I didn't think they were going to make the playoffs, but I thought they'd be fun and you'd see the start of something. But we're not seeing that at all. Where are you on Cade on, on the DEFCON watch? Are you worried? Are you very concerned? I think if he was going to be one of the 10 best players in the league someday, we would have more reason to see that trajectory as of now. And if he was going to be an absolute disaster, we would have more reason to think that than we do now. So I, I think his most likely outcome is as the second or third guy, as a, as a good facilitator, as a good playmaker, but one who needs a lot of help and maybe more help than we, than we anticipated. It's tough. Took him over Mobley. Took him over Barnes. Took him over Jalen Green, which I think they're actually fine with. But I always expected Cade to be the type of guy who would be orchestrating. He would be at the, his best when he was surrounded by a lot of talent, and probably in the same way that like a, a team like the Thunder has excelled. He would be the one calling the shots, moving guys around, and hopefully be able to supplement that with some outside shooting and, and some driving it into the paint and whatnot. So on the one hand, this is the worst possible situation for a player like him. But I think you're right. I, I think number one status is very much in question. If you don't have that sort of tent pole, I, I think things get way more complicated because who is that guy? Do we need to draft another guy? Does Cade really function as a two or three off of that guy? And if his shot isn't falling as it hasn't in the past, like, do we worry about whether or not he could downshift to that? It, it really becomes murky. Yeah, he's a really good facilitating passer. I think playing off of other potential stars or other high-level prospects who eventually the Pistons bring in. But as a spot shooter, as a cutter, as a screener, like he's not really doing any of those things at a high level. That's not really where his game is. But that's not to say it couldn't be. It's not to say he couldn't grow in those directions, just as he could grow as an on-ball creator. He could grow to be more dynamic in terms of running an offense. It's just this group of players that's surrounding him isn't it and isn't enough. And maybe if you gave him the ideal supporting cast, he could do something with it. But the reality of this Pistons team is that Cade could be having an awesome season right now and they would still be very, very bad because the pieces do not fit together. Well, that probably brings us to the San Antonio Spurs, who Victor Wembanyama having obviously a, a rookie season that's full of mistakes. And I think a lot of people have taken a lot of glee of, of vaulting Chet above him in some rookie rankings. Oh, some, doing this some without Waz just feels wrong. I know. I know. Uh, he'll have plenty of opportunities, I'm sure. Um, but Misery Loves Company and the Spurs have also loved, uh, lost 16 straight games, ties the longest streak in franchise history, actually have a worse point differential than the Detroit Pistons, a team we're talking about could be the, one of the worst in recent NBA history, if not all of NBA history. Uh, are you more concerned, less concerned with, with the Spurs experience this year? It's a, it's a great question. Um, he, here's where I'm at. I know I mentioned the, the third quarter performance for the Spurs earlier. Have, have you happened to see their like metrics in third quarters this year? I haven't, no. So here's here's what's been happening. The Spurs are actually like in a lot of these games. And by halftime, they're right in it or they're up in a lot of these games. In the third quarter, the Spurs have a net rating of minus 27.8 points per possessions. Ooh. They are getting run off the floor in the third quarter, which to me says one of two things. Either this is a young team that doesn't really know how to finish yet 
And maybe we'll even get better at that over the course of the season. We'll be better at responding in second halves and continuing efforts and playing with a lead. Or does it say that teams just aren't trying very hard against the Spurs because they're not taking them very seriously? And once the Spurs get a little bit of a lead and they have any inclination to turn it on, they just swat these guys away. And I, I kind of find myself leaning in that direction, if I'm being honest, where you can see as teams get in these games, and yes, I'm sure there's like a an acclimation to Victor Webanyama specifically, he's such a unique player. You kind of need to see him to figure out how you're going to play with and against him. But then you see the rest of the team and you're like, wait, these guys aren't running basically anything functional on offense. There's a lot we can disrupt here. Even their defense, there's a lot we can exploit. Look at all these matchups we can work over. I think once you see it, if you're a veteran team, if you're a more talented playoff or even like quasi-playoff level team, you can just kind of take care of the players that San Antonio is rolling out there right now. You know, this isn't to the level of a Grand Rapid Vipers taking 93s a game level of That's the Rio Grande Valley Vipers. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Not even the right state. I'm sorry to all Texans. I'm sorry to the the Viper legends who may or may not still be in the league. Uh, But I would say Pop basically running an experiment with his starting unit is one of the most wild decisions I've seen in a very long time. Like, I think I would be more concerned about them if they weren't so self-aware about the fact that they're just letting some of their main guys do whatever the fuck they want. And Pop has changed up the lineup in recent yeah. days, put Victor at center, uh, took Collins out of the starting lineup. He tried to demote Sohan. Sohan comes back in this yep. game. I think it's telling that despite all of those changes, we still don't get a fucking point guard with this, the starting lineup. No. Yeah. Of all the people who have been subbed into the starting lineup, Trey Jones is not one of them. Really the only yes. actual point guard on the roster. To the point that, do you know who Greg Popovich opted to start when he did demote Jeremy Sohan? Was it Brandon? He did start Malachi Brandon the following game. But initially against the Timberwolves, Sohan comes out of the starting lineup, finally. Play, people have been begging for this all season. I've been a little slower on that front, although now, look, I get it. Put in Chetty Osman as, mm. as the starter. Bench Jeremy Sohan, start Chetty Osman. Cavs legend. At some, Cavs legend. At some point, I think you just have to respect the bit that Pop is doing here. You just have to respect his commitment to the fact that for whatever reason... This is how he wants to manage this team, despite the fact that the data is what it is with Trey Jones on the floor. They just gave Trey Jones a contract extension over the summer and yet don't want to play him. I I don't know what to do. Like, Do you think Trey Jones will start a game this season? And if so, when do you think it will be? I think when it gets so bad that the NBA makes a phone call and they you say, think so? can you clean this up? <laughs> well, I mean, it happened with the Sixers. And let's be honest, is this any better than the Sixers playing through G League guys like a Tony Roten and all those other legends from the process era like is basically saying that Jeremy Sohan and Devin Vassell and Victor Webanyama are going to handle the ball when they're clearly very far away from that being a, a main part of their game and treating this as an experiment. Is that that much worse than what the Sixers did with a bunch of shit players? I would say no. I think some franchises at the ownership level 
are just a little more susceptible to the suggestion that like, hey, you should hire a Colangelo to run your team than others are. And I think if the Spurs got a call from Adam Silver insisting that they run their team in a particular way, uh, I can't imagine Greg Popovich taking like too kindly to the suggestion that he, that the NBA should tell him how to run this team. And he's entitled to that, but he, I can't say he's running the team very well right now. Yeah. And listen, I'll say the same thing I said about the Pistons, about the Spurs. Like, this actually might be in their best interest to do this. Like, Vassell and Sohan and Wemby having these reps, like doing things they typically wouldn't, will probably help them long term. So, in a way, I guess I feel better about the Spurs being losers than the Pistons because I see the vision. And now, ultimately, maybe this comes down to the fact that they have Wemby and the Pistons did not get Wemby. And so yes. that clarifies things, that helps things for your franchise in ways that's like it's impossible to count the ways. But at the same time, like if it's worse in a way because you should be better. You could be better if you just did one to two to three regular things in order to help this team that Pop is clearly saying no to. Yeah, they, they clearly need a lot more than what they've got. And it's, I agree that I'm a little more optimistic about them because of Webinyama, because there's so, so like such clear positional need and fit issues in San Antonio's roster that could be kind of theoretically easily resolved. That said, I've been pretty disappointed in, in Devin Vassell and Kelvin Johnson's seasons. Like their, their opportunities here as spotlight creators, as guys who are put in positions to explore and experiment and do a lot with the ball. They've, they've left me pretty cold, to be honest with you. And you can look at a lot of possessions and say like, why didn't they get Victor Webinyama the ball here? Why didn't they Why didn't they pass it to him here? Why didn't they go over the top? Why didn't they make a, an effort to like post him again after he gave the ball up? And that's a game we play with a lot of young players who we want to like see reach the fullest extent of their talents. But I think there's a lot of cases with, with Vassell and with Keldon Johnson where that's pretty valid, where it's like, why are these guys taking the shots that they are and why are why are they not more successful doing it? Like Devin Vassell is a guy who I think is a, a pretty good pick and roll player and just hasn't really moved the needle very much in terms of like that kind of creation for San Antonio at all this season. Yeah, I just think Vassell is completely not in the right spot. I think he's going to be a tertiary ball handler who's probably best suited running off of screens and being a little bit more JJ Redick than some of those other guys. And wh- sure. whatever else with the ball is going to be a bonus when you desperately need it. Um and so for that reason, the fact that he's even hitting a goddamn shot is a light years better than whatever is happening in Detroit. Like, I see the talent with the Spurs. Even Sohan, who, like, I don't know how he fits with Wembenyama specifically, but that guy has so much grit to his game and has so much subtlety in, like, a almost like a nouveau Dennis Rodman sense. Obviously, the hair makes the comp easy, but, like, the fact that he has so much skill to him despite being a junk-it-up, like, mix-it-up-down-low sort of guy, I think that's, like, encouraging. But I don't, I don't know. It's tough watching these games, man. I, I just... I don't know how much longer they can get away with this. Well, yeah. I, I, I guess that's kind of the question. It's like, when, when do these streaks end for these respective teams? Because I think it's I think at some point in January they play each other, so one of them will have won a game by I think it was mid January. I, I, the the date escapes me, but otherwise, like for the Pistons specifically, I'm eyeing they play the Jazz in a few weeks, and if I'm if I'm Detroit now, I might just start the scouting process for Utah now. 
Because in between then, they play Indiana, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Atlanta. Those are those are pretty tough games for, for a team like the Detroit Pistons of this season. So maybe look ahead a little bit. Maybe get the scouting report out there, you know? Keontae George, like, you know, what are his tendencies? What can we take away? Like, that that's where we're at with the Detroit Pistons is like, let's scout out a team we play 11 days from now and hope for the best that that might actually be the win we can get. No more masterpieces of dog shit, okay? These two teams are masterpieces of dog shit at present. <laughs> Shout out to Will Hardy. Like, already the quote of the season, masterpiece of dog shit. Really, it was the pregnant pause after masterpiece of dog shit that was very like uh who what's the name of like the the insult comic dog on uh on conan Ryan? you know what i'm talking about triumph the yeah triumph the insult comic very much that vibe was like it was a masterpiece of dog shit for me to poop on there you go um yeah i very much a uh uh podcast sort of moment where you're reaching for a word like I literally just did and then it comes out and it's just <laughs> dog shit um, alright why don't we wrap it there uh, Rob thank you for joining me on this intimate conversation and this journey it's my absolute pleasure you know you. We, we miss our guy Waz we wish him the best hopefully speedy recovery from all that ails him but you know we, we gotta we gotta pay the bills around here we got we to put out some pods. We got to punch some tickets. We got to talk about the worst teams in the league. It's what we do here. It's true. Uh, thank you to Jack Sanders on production. Thank you to Ben Cruz. We'll be back on Wednesday when, my friend, it is trade season officially. We'll be back then. We'll see you.